tired of doing it all over again, I'd spend way more time actually practicing speaking with real humans. Because ultimately for most people, that's the end goal you want, right? We don't say, I want to be able to read a language. We say, speak a language. Earlier you asked me, how many languages do you speak? It's not a coincidence to use that term speak, because that's what we really want to do, most of us. Now, yes, I want to read too. A lot of people want to, with Japanese, they want to read manga. You know, maybe they want to watch anime and understand it. Sure. But ultimately, most of us want to be able to go to Japan or wherever, you know, go to a sushi restaurant, order the food in Japanese, have a conversation with, you know, the chef in that language in real time. And all the stuff I did when I first started Japanese was not preparing me to be able to do that. And that was a big mistake. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro and with me is the multi-linguist uh, Ricky Allpark. <laughs> the doing? monolinguist. Oh yeah, I, I, got, see, I got them mixed up. Monolinguist. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, do you know, what do we think of that line in GoldenEye? Do you remember that line uh, where she says, you always were a cunning linguist, James? Remember that oh, line? I appreciate that. Good, yeah. hey? It is good. It wouldn't happen can, now. Can, though, yeah, you can't do that sort of can't happen naughty double entendre sort of no, stuff. No, no. One yeah. ma- Actually, that is one way to get under the skin of some of these people. I'm not going to say the W word, but some of these people. Women? Just, no. <laughs> 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 no. No. Uh, <laughs> but that's good. That's very good. Uh, yes, is to use double entendres and carry on and all that stuff because I hate all that. They, they want things to be concrete. Uh, but today's guest um, is, is all about language, John Fotheringham. Uh, I'm delighted to have him on. And now um, some of you, again, have read the description or have or even heard some of Ricky's offensive intro and, and whatever. Yeah. And, and just you, you're thinking of skipping. You're like, oh, just give me that culture war. Just can't get enough of that culture war. You know, come on, give me more, more, more. Well, take a break. All right. Take a break from that. Yeah. The culture war will be there after. Don't worry about it. Just um, And we talk about Stephen Skull. So come on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I try and foist that on as many of our guests as possible. I got it in front. I got Steven Seagal in front of Norm uh, Finkelstein. You did. Yeah. So that, that was that good. Was, that was masterful. <laughs> so this is, I'm two for two today. Uh, we'll see if we can get, um, you know, keep going with that. But uh, yes, do stick with it and, and, and learn another language. Well, John and I are trying to grow this show and we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment there. Word of mouth is also a very powerful tool, so please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me A Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated. And now on with the show. John Fotheringham is a linguist, teacher, martial artist, podcaster, and the author of Master Japanese and Master Mandarin. He's been learning and teaching languages for over two decades and has lived and worked in Japan, Bangladesh, China, and Taiwan. He's worked as a translator and an interpreter and now focuses on helping others on their language learning journey at his website, languagemastery.com. John, welcome to The New Flesh. Thanks for having me, guys. So, John, as a martial artist and a language guru, who else could better answer this question? <laughs> How good is Steven Seagal's Japanese? Is he the real deal? Oh, boy. Uh, first off, I, I do blush a little bit at the term guru uh, and even martial artist at this point. It, it has been many years since I've set foot in a dojo or dojang or 
whatever you want to call it. Uh, I would say to be generous, I think his Aikido is better than his Japanese. Really? And his Aikido is pretty good. His Japanese, there's not a lot of it. It's hard to find recordings of his Japanese. Um, the scene, he might be better in, than I... The scene yeah. in Nico Above the Law, I, I, if I'll be honest with you, I think that might be uh, a a serious keystone moment of why I got into Japanese. Like, like you know, I, okay. I, I feel like, because uh, um, I was used to be obsessed with, I kind of still love him a lot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if I have to be honest with you, like he's no, he's no good now, but there's a run of films in the, in the, in the 80s yeah. leading up to um, Under, Under Siege, Siege, which is just like, sure. you know, great. But that yeah. scene peak, in Nick, Peak Nick, Steven Seagal. Yeah. Absolutely. But Nico Above the Law, there's a scene at the beginning he is just the coolest guy. And my, one of my Japanese friends, I mean, he is seen as quite cool over there, right? Yeah. At least he, historically. I don't know today if that's true Now or that not. I think I about know. it, my friend is millennial as well. So, well, roughly millennial. He's, he's young, about 10 years younger, but, but it's, he sort of slips in there a little bit. But mm-hmm. but he's Japanese and, and he's in love. He's just like, we looked at the scene and he's just like, oh, so cool. You know? <laughs> <laughs> How did you rate his Japanese, though? Uh, I think I I kind of uh, I copped out, so I didn't have enough data to yeah, no, give but, a but, fair but, assessment. Uh, but uh, John John Astro, how how did your friend rate rate the Japanese? Oh, oh I'm sorry. He yeah. thought it was um, you know he he seemed to think it was quite good. He he, he sort of made fun of the, his way of talking. He's got he's got a cigar way of talking, even when he's speaking in Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's got this kind of, oh, oh, this, yeah. sort of way, this intonation. Yeah, kind of a, a little bit of this going yes. on, hey, you know. You, so John, you've revealed yourself, John. Yes. So you kind of like him too. I yeah, so, so if anyone's looking for a Steven Seagal voiceover or dubbing, you know, I, I'm your man. Right. Uh, I should also say, though, for context, that in Japan, if you say, like, konnichiwa, you know, you're going to get met with, like people are like, you don't have to do much to get a lot of praise. You know, you know how you know you're really Jose is people stop saying that you're Jose, which means you're good. You're good at something. Don't you worry. They're still saying I'm Jose. Don't you worry about that. I get it sometimes, which makes it, yeah, you kind of miss it. Before we leave Steven Seagal there, do you yes. have any uh, opinion on uh, on Aikido itself? Like, like, is it a legitimate martial art? You know, will you win matches in the UFC <laughs> if you step in uh, as an Aikido guy? This is tough. This is tough. I trained in Aikido for some number of years. Uh, I really like it philosophically. I want to believe that if you trained in it long enough, and diligently enough that it would work uh, in most contexts. In a UFC context, it's it's tricky because for one thing, that's not a real real life situation. It's one on one. You have mats. There's no one to come up behind you with a bottle, right, mm. and kick you running on the ground. It's like it's one on one. You know, it, it's no surprise. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, by the way. There's no it's no surprise that has come to dominate in that context. But one of the primary things is that you can and will take the fight to the ground in that context, which is also true. I mean, in real life, they always say most fights end up on the ground. And so I think we're going off on a tangent with martial arts, but I think advice to anyone out there is if you are training in some kind of martial art, train as much as you can not to go to the ground if you can help it, you know, 
Anyway, but that's neither here nor well, there. I think just as to put a cap on it, I think if you guys are going to get into a fight, it needs to be like in a cigar movie where the bad guys sort of fan out in a circle around you and come. That's at right, you and come at you one at a time. Yes, at a time. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> really helpful. <laughs> and throw big haymakers so you can get your nice Aikido move in there and <laughs> yeah. you know lock them up and crack their bones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also I, wear a leather jacket apparently and have a really just yes massive goatee and be kind of like forty five. Right away, always. You know, like, like be, start your career at forty-five and balding, and just be like, anyway, okay. I'm here now. Well, I'm forty-three and starting to thin, so maybe I still have hope as a, well, an action star. You can now we'll um, see. Uh, go and write, write, co-write the script at Warner Brothers, which I'm pretty sure he did. Um, okay, go. so we'd like to cover your fascinating uh, backstory uh, first, but then perhaps we can talk about motivation some philosophical stuff and and sure. and, and your lang language learning philosophy then i might get a little selfish towards the end and see if i can get some tips on how to get out of the intermediate hell realm that i am stuck in right now um but but first perhaps you could give us some insight into your your background uh some of your you know formative years education and how you discovered languages sure well when i was three years old no won't go back that far um Actually, kind of does a little bit. Uh, my dad did business in Japan when I was a little kid, and so he'd bring back toys and, and food and candy and things from Japan. So I think that planted the seed, but that seed sort of laid dormant until fast forward all the way up until university. And I studied linguistics in school. I actually started in industrial design, completely unrelated. Did three years of that, and then I happened to take a industrial design. I'm sorry, a linguistics. 101 class, just a basic university, you know, kind of required class. And I so fell in love. It was so fascinating to me that I decided to just change my major and basically start over because there was no, almost no overlap between those two things. Um, I just found it so fascinating. And as part of that, then you had to kind of specialize in one particular language. I chose Japanese. There's that seed that was planted all those years ago. I think, uh, found an opportunity to, to finally water it. Uh, also at that time I started learning martial arts and in my martial arts group that was at the university, it was kind of this informal mismass of, of different styles and people, you know, we had exchange students from Japan. We had people from China, from Taiwan, from Korea. Sounds like you got the makings of a Kumite right there. It was, it was <laughs> very Kumite-esque for sure. Uh, and, possibly a, maybe a little ninja culty even. Mm. Uh, that's a story for another day. Uh, but anyway, there was a couple Japanese exchange students in that group. And I, I remember thinking how cool it would be if I could actually talk to them in their language. And since I'm starting to study languages, I thought, hey, that'll be perfect. And so, yeah, that, it, it kind of just all started in university for me. Um, and then I graduated in, what was it, 2003, went to Japan. There's a program called the JET program. A lot of people have been in Japan will be familiar with that. You basically just teach English at a high school or a junior high school. They place you somewhere. I got placed in the absolute middle of nowhere, uh, which is actually a good thing. If your goal is to learn a language, you don't want to live in a big city. You want to live as far from other foreigners as possible. And that is exactly what happened. So uh, basically in one year, I went from the very broken, clumsy Japanese that I had learned in school and trying to learn on my own, talking to my friends, to pretty decent, I mean, in, in that one year. Um, and in that same program, they had another position where if your Japanese was up to snuff, you could go work for a local government office. 
And so I applied for that. And then the second year I then went and went to the the big city, which was Kobe, uh, which is a great city, by the way. Uh, yeah. So my second year, I then worked in a government office, basically like a state office would be the equivalent, um, doing translation, interpretation, native checks. They would, they had professional teachers there, professional translators rather, who would translate from Japanese into English. And then they'd come bring it to me and have me do the check. Usually I'd have to just basically start over because one of the rules in translation is you do not translate into your foreign language. You always translate into your native language because no matter how good your language skills get, you're never going to be hundred percent. There's always going to be some things that just sound a little weird, a little non-idiomatic. Uh, so yeah. And that, that was the two years I was in Japan. So I'm fascinated by your time in, in, in rural Japan. Um, can you just flesh out that experience a little more? Like what, what was the name of the city of the town? Uh, so, so it was a town of about, I think it was 6,000 people. And that's pretty spread out. It was like a very rural agricultural town. It was called Aogaki. It doesn't exist anymore because they did this thing in the kind of mid early 2000s where they consolidated lots of little towns into bigger townships and cities just for, I guess, economies of scale or something. So that's now part of a city called Tamba, which is about two hours as the crow flies north of Kobe. Um, yeah. Um, it was so small that there was no uh, train station in my town. And in Japan, almost every single, even tiny little town will have a train station. Which is one of the beautiful things about Japan is you can travel by rail almost anywhere. And it's fantastic. That town did not have one. So I had to buy a car. So I had a car my, my first year in Japan, which was interesting. You have to learn to drive on the other side of the road. You guys are already used to it. You know, you wouldn't be well, a challenge for the you. Right side. That's the correct side. Uh, that's the correct okay. you, drive, you drive the left, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And we have the met we have the metric system as well. So there well, I mean that's that's harder than Japanese, you know. <laughs> but but <laughs> it actually makes you, a lot of sense. Our system's the stupid one. You surely were the only gaijin in the entire town, right? I was the only gaijin in town. Uh, which means foreigner, people are listening. So there's actually two terms. There's gaijin means literally outsider. It, the characters are Yes, I said the offensive person. one. I said, I, I, said I, the offensive I one. The, yeah. That's it straight. Because when you say it, a gaijin in front of a Japanese person, they go, oh, they, they, they get offended. <laughs> 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 I know. They, no. they get offended. So this guy, guy kokujin would be the more PC term, but I'm not overly PC. And from looking at some of your other episodes, I, I think it's just a safe space. It is. We don't have to be. Is, yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, so yes, I was the only foreigner within probably an hour's drive, I think it was. There were a couple other English teachers in a few other towns over, and we'd get together maybe like once a month, you know, for a beer and, a, and some American pizza. You know, got to have the taste of home once in a while. Keep it real. <laughs> well, be, being the only foreigner in that small town, did that make you like a celebrity? Because I, uh, I, I spent a little bit of time uh, in in Hong Kong a, a number of years ago, and I guess because of my size, I'm I'm six foot four. Like, I'd walk around and people would get be getting photos with me, like on on the street. Right. Like I was, you know, and and there were you know, there's lots of foreigners in 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 Hong Kong. So Luke what Longley. was it like, you know? They were. Hey, you were, they were, you were like Luke Longley or something. Yeah, like, yeah, I was like a pro, pro basketballer <laughs> or something. Yeah. I uh, yeah, a little bit. It, it's less a feeling of being a celebrity and more of being an outcast, <laughs> or, you know, or 
uh, a pariah. I don't know. It, it depends. There are definitely times when people kind of giggle and point and stuff. Very often you'd be on a train and, you know, a little kid that doesn't yet have the social programming would just point and say, you know, gaijing or, or like tug on their mom's, you know, uh, clothes and say, mom, there's a foreigner, you know. And then I'd always, you know, kind of look at them, wake and go, yes, I am. <laughs> or I can hear you, <laughs> you know, in Japanese. So, yeah, that would always give them a startle. So before we move off of your, your time there, do, do, do you, um, can you remember any faux pas or any uh, language related faux pas that you, 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 you mm. or just misunderstanding, cultural misunderstandings, or have they all uh, faded into the distance? <laughs> a lot's faded. I mean, because this was a long time ago. This was already. Yeah, 2003, 2005 was when I was there. So um, it's it's almost to the point where the time since then to now is almost, you know, half my life. So it, it's kind of crazy to think. But what it still to this day, such an impactful part of kind of who I am and my identity and my, you know, podcast and my books and everything. So, um, yeah, faux pas. <laughs> the first one that comes to mind, it's not really a faux pas. It's just a pro tip, which is if you're at a bar or any kind of party or gathering, they have these little glasses that they'll put, pour the beer into. When you do not want to drink any more beer, leave your glass full. If that glass is empty, they will keep filling it up no matter what you say, no matter how many times you protest and say, I'm finished, I'm done, I'm plastered, I'm, I'm done. They will keep filling it because they, that is the polite thing to do. And the only socially accepted message or signal is just to leave the glass full and yeah ask me how i learned that um yeah so maybe the same in hong kong i don't know but yeah also don't pour your own glass don't pour your own drink in your own glass usually somebody else will pour and then you will pour theirs as a bit of reciprocity that is that is uh they're very great tips particularly uh for australians who are th who have a bit of a drinking problem so uh it, i think it could end very but very highly bad. functional you know, yes. highly functional, culturally alcoholic, you know. Yeah, yeah. Back in my drinking days, I shouldn't say this, but back in my drinking days, uh, when I went to the US, um, I went to some function and at the end of the night, me and this guy, this like middle-aged guy, were having a good time and, and we're standing by the keg drinking and I realized like as he was driving me home, that he's, I said, oh, you know, so what, what's been going on, Pat? What's your deal? And he revealed to me that he um, had been on the wagon until that night. So it was me and an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> so you're the reason why he's he's yeah now is he back I think on the I made wagon him drive, or, or drive, is off the wagon i think i made him drive us to get me smokes or something you know like all the bad old days oh god and he was driving whilst drinking too so this is just this great you know barrel of uh of bad behavior kansas which, they do it different you know, different there they have beer barns there you heard of that it's literally a drive-through yeah it's called a beer barn or a brew through as it were <laughs> And it's a drive-through alcohol store where you drive up to the window and then you buy the beer. You know, you're not buying it open and drinking it, but like you, you just get it put to you, so you don't have to actually go inside a store. We have those everywhere, John. We have those everywhere. We're Australian. Really? Why yeah. am I not surprised? We, we call them bottleos <laughs> or, or drive-throughs. Drive-throughs are everywhere here. Drive. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I think they were one of the first things to open, like like getting out of the pandemic. Post-pandemic, like right. Stuff. It was like, right. all right, the bottleos are open. <laughs> Life is back to normal. <laughs> well, if we steer the ship uh, back to, to languages, uh, how many languages do you speak? Yeah, that's always the question, isn't it? Um, I like a lot of the polyglots I've interviewed on my podcast. 
And by the way, I don't necessarily consider myself a polyglot. I mean, it's there's not really any official definition of what that means, how many languages it is. I, for myself, tend to think it's about five. And so I kind of fall right below that then in, in my own definition. Um, so obviously native English speaker um, of a different variety to my current other friends on the screen here, but obviously we can understand each other most of the time. Um, Japanese was kind of my first main language I, I sort of fell in love with and went deep on. Uh, Mandarin Chinese came after that. I went and lived in Taiwan actually for some number of years. Um, and then just a little tiny bit of a bunch. So I've, you know, I've dipped my toes in Spanish and French, um, little tiny bit into Korean. I figure it's like linguistically, culturally, geographically halfway between Japan and China. So I thought, Hey, why not? You know, it's right there, but, uh, sure enough, it's actually a very different language. Who knew? Uh, so yeah, that's kind of the list. So I'd say three point something. <laughs> So would you mind giving us a macro view of, of your uh, sort of learning language learning journey with, with the first additional language? Like how did, how, how did with that Mandarin process or go? with Japanese? The first one you learned. Okay. So Japanese. Yeah. Uh, so I basically made every mistake possible, which in hindsight is a good thing because now I can help other learners better because I made the same mistakes. I definitely would not learn a language now the way I did then. For sure. Um, you know, I was studying in a school in a formal environment, lots of memorization, trying to force the language into my brain, um, trying to memorize grammar rules and vocabulary from a book as if somehow you can then both understand that and pull that out in real conversation, which is just not the way languages actually work. Um, trying to learn obscure vocabulary, you know, things that I thought would make me sound really erudite. A lot of that thing is just being a 20, you know, young 20 something male and having, you know, an ego, the size of Texas. Um, luckily for most of us, that tends to get a little smaller with age. Uh, you know, now it's down just to Kansas size ego. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, just completely the wrong approach. And I think a lot of it too, was spending way too much time with the nose in a book uh and focusing just on input and not nearly enough time practicing output so in, in linguistics we have basically two halves of a language you have input and output input is listening and reading output is speaking and writing they're both important you need both obviously you need all four skills but most people to this day even though we have all these amazing resources spend almost all their time on input on listening and reading to stuff whether online or books or whatever. And it makes sense why it's comfortable. You don't have to communicate in real time with anybody. You can't make a mistake. You can look things up. You can pause the video, right? You can get out your phone now even and just point it at the text and it'll translate it for you in real time. So that's safe. The thing, and I, and I did that because it was safe. Uh, if I were to do it all over again, I'd spend way more time actually practicing speaking with real humans, because ultimately for most people, that's the end goal you want, right? We don't say, I want to be able to read a language. We say, speak a language. Earlier you asked me, how many languages do you speak? It's not a coincidence to use that term speak, because that's what we really want to do. Most of us now, yes, I want to read too. A lot of people want to, with Japanese, they want to read manga, you know, maybe they want to watch anime and understand it. Sure. But ultimately most of us want to be able to go to Japan or wherever, you know, go to a sushi restaurant order the food in Japanese, have a conversation with 
you know, the chef in that language in real time. And all the stuff I did when I first started Japanese was not preparing me to be able to do that. And that was a big mistake. Mm. Yeah. Well, I've, I've, I've got a question about, about the classroom. Like my, my son, who's, who's five, he, he learns Italian at his school. And I, I think his weekly class is 30 minutes. Maybe it's an hour. <laughs> uh, you know, he can say a few colors. He can name a few body parts. And, you know, he can say a greeting. But, <laughs> but I, I don't think his seven years of, of primary school is going to make sure. him a very good Italian speaker. Like, do, do you think there's yeah. much use in teaching a language in the classroom for a limited amount of time a week? Like, would, would they be better off just learning about Italian culture once a week? And then maybe at least he would be interested enough to make a go of it, make a go of really mm. learning the language kind of later on, you know. Or on his own time, potentially. That's right. Yeah. 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 That's a very good question. And I think you've kind of already had the observation, I think is right, which is really the best use of that time would probably be getting them interested in the culture, getting them fascinated by it. Um, the other thing that might be helpful, I think, and this is what I would do if it were my own, if I were the teacher of that class, is I'd try to provide some cultural context, build some excitement, and I would also introduce them to videos, resources, other things that they could then consume on their own time. You know, I'd give them like a, basically a playlist of like YouTube videos. I'd give them podcasts. I'd give them obviously age appropriate stuff. Uh, maybe watch a little clip just to kind of pique their interest. But the thing is, as a native speaker or a fluent speaker of a language, it's so much easier for you to find resources and then share them with learners. Whereas if you're an absolute beginner in a language, good luck trying to find good content. You know, for one thing, you're probably searching English and then you're not going to find it because the good stuff is not going to be written in English, right? Um, yeah, but I think you're right. I think that amount of time, you're not going to get very far in the language itself. Um, if anything, and this is the case for, I think, language education in general. And I say this from the point of view as a teacher and somebody who's studied uh, teaching English to speakers of other languages as, you know, in an academic way. I, I think teachers are amazing. I think they're valuable. It's just that when it comes down to it, we literally cannot teach languages. They cannot be taught. They can only be acquired. And the best thing I think a teacher can do in the classroom environment is, as I've already said, provide cultural context, connect learners with resources, maybe answer questions. If students are genuinely curious, why is this this way? Why do you say this and not this? That stuff is interesting, but it's not necessary. I always tell people that, you know, why a language is the way it is, is a very interesting question, especially for linguistic geeks like me, but you don't need to know the why. You just need to know the what. Yeah, it's it's really interesting what you say there. Like you can't you can't teach a language; you just acquire it. I I feel like most people out there and 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 in most schools still have that other view where you know yeah. you sit down, you wrote, learn, you do all that sort of stuff. I'm I'm just curious to know why people why people uh, you know haven't been. Uh, you know, haven't changed their view on that based on a lot of the evidence now that we have about how you actually learn a language. Right. Yeah. I ask myself that question a lot. Uh, I think a lot of it's just momentum. You know, it's easy to keep doing something the way it's been done. There is a lot of money and uh, compensation and uh, incentives that are all behind the existing model of doing it that way. Uh, the other thing is, okay, let's say you're a school district or you're designing a curriculum and you want to do some kind of foreign language thing. What else are you going to do? I mean, you have 30, 40 kids in a classroom. 
their their parents and the uh you know universities or wherever they expect them to get a certain grade in that class how are you going to assess them and test them in this more naturalistic model that i you know espouse it's really hard because you really can't uh other than some kind of just spoken you know oral fluency kind of test which they do have those um but it's much harder it's much easier to just you know test people on a multiple choice test or something which basically only assesses your conscious knowledge about the language which has as i said kind of earlier has almost nothing to do with your ability to actually understand and use a the language they're almost you couldn't make them further apart in many ways Mm. Well, what what's your view on on apps like Duolingo? I mean, would 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 my son be better off just sitting there for half an hour doing Duolingo? I don't think it's either or. I mean, I, I think Duolingo is a great uh, auxiliary activity that you can do alongside other things. I actually a lot of people love to beat up on Duolingo, especially in kind of my polyglot world that I spend a lot of time in. The you know YouTubers and whatever they they love to beat up on it. I think. As apps go, as language apps go, I think it's actually quite decent. Uh, it has excellent gamification. There's no arguing that. I mean, many people criticize it and they say, well, it's just a game. You're like, you're damn right it is. It's a game. And part of what makes games games is that they're addictive and they get you to show up every day. And so if you're somebody that wants to learn a language and you've never learned one before, you are not used to spending one, two, three hours a day immersed in authentic content that you don't understand. You're not used to all the ambiguity and uncertainty that comes with that. Uh, to suddenly jump into doing that, I think can be too big of an ask for a lot of learners. Whereas a Duolingo, I think it's a nice little on-ramp for a lot of people to get them kind of into the habit of language learning every day, building an identity. This is a James Clear thing, right? If you want to actually become someone that speaks a language fluently, first you have to build an identity that you are a language learner or a language speaker. And I think Duolingo is a fantastic kind of gateway drug to get people into that. I actually, I wrote a blog post called, I think it was why Duolingo won't get you fluent, but why you should use it anyway. Because I think it is, I think it's a good little kind of, you know, dopamine machine to get you into the habit. Just don't stop there. That's the one problem is people get stuck in the, the dopamine seeking gamified world and then never branch out and actually do the stuff that really matters. Like I said earlier, having actual conversations consuming actual authentic content, reading authentic content, things like that. Well, I think we should probably get into what you call anywhere immersion. Uh, TM. As, which, <laughs> TM, John Fotheringham. So which I think is um, uh, I, I, probably in opposition to to what we've just talked about, the classroom and and some of that rote learning and what people think. So maybe could you could you could you tell us about uh, anywhere immersion and see if we can um, start thinking about uh, you know what it's like you know how people can what it's like for beginners and how people because what we really want sure. is people to, who are listening to this to um, just to start their language journey. So so we've got some beginners right. who, who, who want to know what to do. Sure. Yeah. And, and I'll full disclosure, I think that anywhere immersion is a lot easier and more enjoyable the higher up you get in your you know, language journey. So, you know, for an intermediate learner who's, you know, knows, has a decent vocabulary already, knows, at least consciously knows a lot of vocabulary, it's gonna be a lot more enjoyable. The, the real challenge is how do you do it when you're an absolute beginner, to your point. Uh, and it is a challenge. 
Uh, and that's again why I think something like Duolingo alongside Anywhere Immersion in the beginning can be a good combo because then you're kind of you're hijacking the habit formation part from this highly addictive game alongside this other thing that has much fewer immediate rewards. Uh, you know, if you're an absolute beginner and you go watch a 30 minute show on Netflix in Japanese with no subtitles, you're going to get close to nil out of that. Right. It's still a valuable activity. I still think you should do it. Uh, but it's going to be very, very difficult and take a lot of discipline, take a lot of glucose, right. To, to be able to stick to it. Now there are ways to make it easier and I can go through those in a second, but I don't want to go off on that tangent quite yet. Um, I want to zoom out a little bit first and just kind of define anywhere immersion in broader terms first. So as I define anywhere immersion, as the name kind of implies, it's immersion you can do anywhere. And the basic idea of this was that when I first started learning Japanese, I still had to buy physical media for almost everything. I mean, literal, I had a kanji book, you know, Chinese character book dictionary. It was the thing weighed 15 pounds. It was massive. And I carried this around in my backpack. I probably have permanent, you know, back damage from that. <laughs> and to look up characters in that thing, you had to go to an index, look up characters by the constituent radicals and look for the number. I mean, it took ages and ages. And that was a physical thing that I had to buy. I think it cost me like $150. It's crazy. Now I have the same basic function right here on my phone. I could just either point the camera at a character and it'll find it through optical character recognition or I could just write it with my finger on the screen. Brilliant, right? And that's the point, is that now with technology, you can literally bring anything you need to you, wherever you are, via this, via your computer, via your smart TV. You know, the, the options are endless, but the point being like where you live is no longer an excuse. Where you live is no longer a limiting factor. Now, granted, if you can move to Japan or wherever your target language is spoken, awesome. Do it. Absolutely do it. Changed my life. But so many people think, oh, I'd really love to learn Japanese, but I can't move to Japan. I guess I'm hosed. I guess I can't do it. BS. It's not true. You just need a little discipline, a little creativity, and an internet connection. And if you don't have an internet connection, if you don't have a smartphone, you can go to the bloody library and you can use the <laughs> internet connection there. Like there really is no excuse. Um, so then basically the idea is, okay, we have this technology, we have all this media. So what can I do? How can I design my day so that as I go through my day, as much as possible, everything I'm seeing, hearing, reading is in my target language. And there's lots of ways you can do that. That's basically most of what my book, Master Japanese and Master Mandarin are, are how to do that, how to build that environment, you know, which TV shows to watch, which podcasts to listen to, which apps to use so that, yes, as you go through your day and also physical media too. I mean, I, I do, I'm a huge fan. I mean, if you look at my background, I've got a lot of physical books. I still love underlining sentences and, you know, I'm a big fan of marginalia. I think paper is still powerful, uh, but that's just because I'm a nerd. I think for most people, <laughs> digital media wins because it's, it's free, it's portable. I mean, you can fit more Japanese listening and reading content than you'd ever be able to go through in your entire life in this little tiny square. It's absolutely amazing. So and one of the things that you cover in, in your in your book is I mean surprise is actually two books. One is the is is the um 
book that's focused on the language itself, which is which you provide. But the but the but mastering Japanese is is um you know uh, it's much more than that. You actually talk about um, motivations and um, you know some really broad philosophical things which are so so maybe you you could like give us sure. i mean how important is is motivation and and your why and all of that in in learning a language yes absolutely important and i i actually talk about it a lot you're right i i'm probably underselling my own thing um i think it's essential i don't think it's talked about enough i think maybe more so now i mean a lot of the folks i know in this kind of language blogosphere youtube world uh talk about it more now but when i was first starting out because i started my blog i think it was 2009 so it, you know i've been at it not consistently enough but off and on for quite a long time and back then it was mostly about just tactical practical stuff about how the language works and this and that and i didn't see a lot of people talking about what i kind of saw as the missing piece which was the psychological foundation uh you know to your point motivation psychology uh you know, cognitive distortions. I mean, so many I've, in recent years, I've gotten into cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Mm. And I realized so many of the things that I did wrong or see learners doing wrong. They're all just distorted thoughts. They're all these beliefs about, you know, I either have to do it perfectly or it's a failure. I say, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. You know, reality is not binary like that. Like it's a spectrum. Uh, you know, maybe you use the wrong word or you conjugated the verb a little wrong, but did the other person understand? Did you get the ball over the net? Then hallelujah, congratulations. You communicated, my friend. That's amazing. You know, next time maybe you'll get a little better, but you didn't fail. You communicated. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, I think, I think psychology and attitude, motivation, I think those things are massively important. Uh, I'm definitely not the only one talking about those things uh, these days. I know you had Steve Kaufman on your uh, podcast the other week, and he's very much into that as well. I think he's his YouTube channel. People should check it out. He talks a lot about attitude and, and um, motivation. Um, yeah, so important. And that's kind of, if I zoom out a little bit too, I think there's kind of three buckets when I think about how to go about learning a language, and they all have to be full. And so bucket one is your mind. You need to master your mind. If you don't master your mind, then it doesn't matter how good the other, how full the other two buckets are, it's not going to work. Bucket two is mastering your day, your time, you know, just basically the actual practical habit formation stuff. How do you fit this anywhere immersion idea into your day? And then bucket three is your environment. So how do you actually make sure that everything you see here, taste, touch, and smell is in that target language or helping you learn that target language? And I, I think a lot of language learners fail because they only fill one bucket. Maybe they get the the environment part right. They have all the, you know, they get all the anime on Netflix and they get a whole stack of manga, but then their attitude's out of whack. And then they never actually watch it. Or they watch five minutes of a an anime on Netflix, don't understand all of it, and then give up. They think, oh, I'm just not very good at languages. Like, no, your method just maybe wasn't quite right. So is is the mind bucket more about um, just just motivation and 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 having the mindset that that you're not going to be perfect and or, and maybe it comes 
it's it's also about routine maybe like you know mm-hmm. I've, I've listened to a lot of people talk about how you need to you know if you want to work out every day you've got to have your weights out like if they're packed away somewhere then you're not gonna, right not going to use them you know that 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 sort of mind mentality right yeah it's definitely that's a big part of it i think when it comes to languages specifically the two most difficult things for adult learners like us is dealing with uncertainty and ambiguity because we're so used to being able to say exactly what we're thinking and feeling and understanding almost everything that we hear or read. You know, we don't remember what it was like to be one year old and not understand anything and not be able to, you know, we had to, we cried and cried and cried and we hoped that cry would get us the thing we wanted, but it was this very blunt tool, right? We're, we're so now spoiled for so long being so erudite and, you know, be able to be basically put into words, whether written or spoken, exactly what it is we want. When you start a new language, it's going back to, I won't say zero because it isn't zero, but it's pretty far back, right? (laughs) Uh, And that's very, very difficult. It's very uncomfortable. And so I think the number one meta skill, if you want to get fluent in a language, is training yourself to endure not understanding and not being understood. And it's bloody difficult. I feel like this is the most underrated thing. I, I don't know why. Well, I, you know, part of it is that that what you said before. There's there's a lot of grifting and a lot of um, infrastructure and money behind the dumb method of you know of how we learn and teach and whatever. That because I'm so frustrated. I feel like the first thing I've done a little bit of classroom learning. The first thing they should have said is when I rolled up is they should have said, okay, now. The, you know, you're all adults. The number one thing you're going to have to deal with is uh, the horror of of not not understanding, not being understood, and and mainly appearing foolish. Which is, yeah. If I'm being a hundred percent honest, I think one of my we'll get into my personal journey later. But my my um, uh, I feel I'm here. like Doctor John is here for you, Doctor John. John <laughs> one of my big horrors is appearing foolish, and um, yeah. Yeah. which is. I think it's a big block where I'm at now um, in finding a good tutor and like, you know, even connecting with my friends uh, as much as I would like um, because I'm, I'm sure. even horrified of appearing foolish to them, you know? Absolutely. It's hardwired, man. I mean, assuming people listening here believe in human evolution or if you want to believe in, you know, whatever, whatever design, uh, the point is it's hardwired into all of us to fear being outcast to fear looking like an idiot because being an idiot, being unuseful to your tribe is very likely meaning you're going to be outcast, which means you're going to die. So as silly as it sounds, making mistakes in your Japanese, our brain equates that to, I could literally die. Not even just feel like I'm dying, but to our DNA, it's worried we're going to get put on an iceberg and pushed away because we were idiots. (laughs) Mm. So that's in there. That's it's real. Uh, I actually think, honestly, this is one of the main reasons why children tend to do better in acquiring languages in many, many ways. I'm certainly not the only one who's made this argument. Uh, In many, many ways, adults are actually faster, better language learners. Um, Other than accent and pronunciation, that's kind of the one thing most adult learners will never quite get 100% native-like pronunciation. And so be it. So what? Um, But other than that, we tend to learn much, much, much faster if we get out of our own damn way. And that's where we almost always fail, to your point, John. And I have the same exact thing. I Even now, I just spoke with a Mandarin Chinese tutor earlier today, and I haven't spoken Mandarin in quite a while. I was so worried about 
making a fool of myself. And it's even worse now that I'm a, you know, I'm a linguist. I have a, you know, a whole website and books about, uh, you, you know, how to learn language. That says I, mastering Mandarin. Master, has the word master in it, which by the way, was probably, <laughs> I mean, it's so funny because people, they assume I have the word master in my things that, that I'm a perfectionist and that I believe in like, you know, becoming the best in the world. That's not it at all. We could talk later about how I define mastery, but it's, it's not that. And honestly, it was just, I had the domain available. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Language mastery. Cool. I'll get that. It really was as simple as that in the beginning. Um, but yeah, we we get in our own way and we're so afraid of making mistakes and looking foolish. And, and that's usually where we get blocked. And so it's not easy and I still struggle with it. But for all the languages I've learned, I make the fastest progress when I make the most mistakes and take myself the least seriously and just have fun with it and make goofy mistakes and, and use hand gestures and, you know, body language and facial expressions, drawing, you know, typing stuff. That's one of the nice things now about if you do online tutoring is you can, you know, look, look stuff up in, in real time. You can go on Google translate or whatever you want and you can find the thing you want to say, pop it into the chat and they'll go, Oh, okay. That's what you're trying to say. And, but for that, you know, five seconds when you're like, Oh, just, just, a, just a second, you feel like an idiot. You feel like an idiot. They can hear the keystrokes, you know, and you're like, ah, this isn't good. This isn't good. But you know what? You communicate. Like I said earlier, you get the ball over the net. You see a little smile on their face when they know what you're trying to say. And it's great. And the, in the end of the day, all that matters is that you communicated and that you learned a little bit. And that thing you couldn't remember how to say or the time you said the wrong word, like the time that Tim Ferriss said he... He asked his host mother in Japan to rape him at 8 a.m. the next morning on accident instead of wake him at 8 a.m. <laughs> One syllable difference, okasu versus okosu. Oops. Uh, you know what? He would never forgot that again because that was so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, as I said earlier, what I, uh, what I love about the, uh, your book is, is you know, you focus on motivation. But one, one of the things you've got, uh, you just mentioned Tim Ferriss, just one of the many people you quote in the book from, uh, you know, you're obviously very interested. I mean, as, as, as we are too, very interested in, in um, uh, I, for lack of a better term, self-development, I guess. is, is Sure. I think uh, that's in- a good, safe term. We'll yes. go with that. Yes. So, or you're at least interested in the way the mind works, and and you're going to use. You want tools. You want to know how things. Uh, you know, whatever you can uh, use to get it done. But um, you know, here's just an, a concrete example for people because you talk. Uh, you also bring in. Um, you hedge a little bit by saying, "Oh, you don't have to see yourself as a warrior." But I think you know, I <laughs> I just I look at it and I go, "No, no, I I completely agree with this." So you you talk about like developing a, a warrior mindset when approaching mm-hmm. goals, and you've got this great. Uh, 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 quote in here when you talk about external locus of control and internal locus of control. So stay with me, people. Uh, external locus of control, those with a strong external locus of control believe they have little power over much of what happens in their life. They attribute success and failure to external factors such as luck, fate, privilege, God, one's environment, the economy. They tend to blame the outside world instead of taking a personal responsibility for changing their lives. This is in opposition to uh, internal locus of control. Those with a strong internal locus of control believe they have power over much of what happens in their life. They attribute success and failure to internal factors such as personal effort and choice. They take responsibility for their decisions and take action to improve their circumstances. Now, it seems to me that the that what you describe here, this warrior ethos uh, or this kind of this way of thinking rather, um, is very much out of fashion these days. Um, 
with everyone keen to blame externalities for their problems because yes. it's so funny because you know um 10 15 years ago uh, i you know reading seth godin and and you know, all these interesting thinkers mm -hmm. and and um all the motivational stuff that i'm into i feel like um all of this would be taken for granted like we would just go yeah yeah absolutely you take you know right. you, you, but when you win it when in 20 23 or, or it's controversial you know, now but it is controversial I, I i read what you've said there and there was a time when th this would have been accepted by everyone and we would have made movies about it and you know mm -hmm. the heroes would have gone through this and we would understand it but it's actually quite controversial so i want to get your your um uh ideas on on this p particular point yeah and I, I should i think clarify too that it's not either or you know people tend to have a bit of both depending on the topic at hand and people tend to oscillate between those two at various points in their life uh depending on their situation so you know all of us on this call i'm sure we've there are certain things about which we have an, an internal oaks of control and other things were probably a bit more external um it also it's a lot easier to have an internal oaks of control when things are going well for you uh and it's a lot harder when you know do you is swearing okay on the show you can awesome. say whatever you like. You can say all of all George right. Carlin's uh, dirty words. <laughs> if you like. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, when things are going to shit, is what I'm going to say, uh, it's a lot harder to maintain internal oaks of control. I think you still need to because your life's going to stay shit with an external oaks of control. And that's what we see in the world right now. Uh, it's not to say there aren't bad things happening out in the world. And I think also part of the danger is if you take either of these to the extreme, you you really miss what's happening in the world. You miss the truth. There are tons of things. Most things are outside of our control. And I think people kind of mistake this idea of an internal control that everything, you bring everything inside and you control everything. No, that's called being insane. That's called being a megalomaniac, you know. Um, that's being Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> the But then you go to the other extreme and then you have you know, the worst of what's you've seen, like in places like Portland uh, or San Francisco or, you know, kind of the extreme, almost cartoon version of the, you know, progressive left thing. And I, I'm left of center, but so many of the things that I espouse and talk about in my books now would put me right of center in a lot of people's books because this whole idea of like personal responsibility. I don't know why that's a conservative idea. It shouldn't be. But because I, I espouse that, I kind of get lumped in sometimes with with folks that in so many other things I don't agree with. But that that one thing I, I hold true to. Um, so if we bring this back to language learning, which is probably a good idea, right? Uh, there's so much that we could point outside of ourselves and say, well, I can't learn language X because X, Y, Z. There's all these reasons, all these excuses why you can't do it. I don't have money for it. I don't have time for it. I don't live where the language is spoken. I don't know anybody from that culture or country, on and on and on and on and on. And my basic point is, and much of the my writing and my podcasting and everything is trying to make this point is, none of those are real barriers. They're psychological barriers. They're not real barriers. I don't doubt you're busy. We're all busy. I don't doubt that you have you know, more expenses probably than you have money coming in much of the time. I don't doubt that. But if something really matters to you, if you really, really, really want to do this thing, if you want to learn Japanese, Mandarin, Spanish, whatever it is, there is a way. You can build time into your life. You can find resources. So much stuff is now free, or at least absurdly cheap. I mean, going back again to the 
academic model versus kind of this anywhere immersion idea. If you take an academic class, you know, to learn a language, that's hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, right? To do that. With anywhere immersion, it's either free to, at most, if you're like doing tons of tutoring and buying some really like fancy apps or books or whatever, maybe a few hundred dollars a month, but nowhere near that. But the beauty of it is it can be absolute zero dollars if you go about it right. And so the excuse that I don't have money, well, that's out the door. If you have this internal locus of control, and that's again the key, start and going back to psychology, you're starting with this uh, viewpoint that I can figure it out, that no matter what, I can do it myself. It might not be easy. It's easier for some people than others. And again, this is where the bio-individuality part of it comes into it. Uh, you know, it's a lot easier for some people that uh, are familiar with technology to find these online resources. But again, you don't even need to have your own internet connection. You can go to your library. Your local library has an internet connection. They have books. They have, you know, I don't know about in Australia, but here in the States, most libraries have memberships of things like, uh, is it Monolingo? Most of, there's, there's all these different like kind of expensive uh, learning apps that normally cost hundreds of dollars a month and you can just get it for free through your library. So the things exist, they're out there. Uh, I'm too old to learn is another common one. Well, you had Steve Kaufman on your show a couple weeks back, right? Or whenever it was. He's turning 78 here, I think in just a couple days. And he's now in his 20th language. So most of which he's learned in his 50s and 60s and 70s. So granted, he's one person, but there are lots of people like that. That is not, you know, as rare, I think, as people realize. So internal locus of control. Yeah, you can do it. Control things you can control. Do not worry about controlling things you can't control. That's kind of the other half of that I didn't get into. This is very much like a stoicism thing, right? It's like, you know, control the things you can control and then ignore everything else. And as I said, most things we can't control. So <laughs> you can't control what happens on the news. I can't control right now if China is going to invade Taiwan or not. But I can control, uh, hopefully going back for a visit before that happens. You know, I can control... Uh, helping out if any of my Taiwanese friends want to get out, provide them, you know, a safe place to land for a while until they get sorted. I can control that, but I can't control if they decide to be absolute idiots and invade a, a sovereign nation. Anyway, now we got real political. Oh boy. I love it. <laughs> uh, well, my, my wife takes to languages quite well. She's, she's fairly good at French and has recently taken up Spanish and is making quick progress. And, and I consider her to be better at learning languages than I am. Okay. What makes her so quick? Is there any evidence that women are better at languages than men? Or do some mm -hmm. people just have an aptitude for languages? Okay. There's a couple things in there we have to unpack. Uh, I haven't seen any compelling evidence that there's much difference uh, in the sexes in terms of aptitude for acquiring languages. There's one interesting thing which comes to mind, which is that on average, women tend to have a larger corpus callosum, the you know, part that connects the two hemispheres of the brain. I said no swearing on this show, John. Don't, Sorry. Don't just say, I don't know what no. that is, but it sounds obscene. I just dropped the C word <laughs> right here. here. <laughs> uh, that could account for parts of it. Uh, you know, even though we don't, like no one can actually multitask. That's a myth, right? You just switch back and forth very fast between multiple things. But having a big corpus callosum helps you do that faster. So that is part of why, I don't know if you ever watched, there's that great TED talk 
um, from Sir Ken Robinson, the late Sir Ken Robinson, rest in peace. Uh, he was talking about how like, you know, a woman could be in the kitchen painting the ceiling and making a thing and then, you know, doing open heart surgery all at once. And then, you know, the man's in the kitchen with the door closed. And if you come in and say, oh, honey, get, excuse me, I'm trying to fry an egg in here. You're like, yeah. um, you're basically like Jack in The Shining when you're like, yes. time you hear typing yeah. in here, Wendy. Typing, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know if there's gender differences there. I think there's attitudinal differences for sure. And there's probably differences in, in general. I don't want to generalize, but we XY chromosomers, uh, Going back to what we talked about before about the fear of making mistakes and looking stupid. That seems to be a much bigger deal in general for men is that fear of looking dumb than women. I'm, these are generalizations, but that's been my observation mm -hmm. that I think our ego tends to block us a lot more on stuff like that. Um, I think also in general, uh, men tend to care more about things and women tend to care more about people. Huge generalizations, I know. These are just generalizations. Mm. You canceled now. We have to hedge so much on this stuff. Like, like what? You know, I think that what we're all talking about when we say these things is there's a graph you can look at, which is like huge spike, right? right? Standard distribution. Yes, yes, basically yes. everyone. And then we're, when we and we're, when we hedge, we're talking about these tiny little things on the yes. edges, right? It's because I I care about those people on the edges. Well, I care, John. About them too, they matter. Edges <laughs> matter. All lives matter. Is that what you're saying, John? I said edge people matter. <laughs> <laughs> That's a work jitsu move. It is. I'm very good. Very good. <laughs> I'm hedging by edging. See what I'm doing? Uh, yes. So I don't know. But I do think the psychology makes a huge role there. And also there's just individual difference. I mean, obviously, this is something I've actually changed my mind on over the years. I used to think that anybody, everyone can learn languages just as easily as anyone else. And if they can't, it's because they're just having blocks about it. It's just psychological. I still think that's a huge part of it, but let's be real. There are some people that do just have certain natural, you know, aptitudes for certain things. Um, but so what? It's like, I, you know, I'm never going to play in the NBA here in the US. I mean, for, for starters, I don't play basketball. That's, you know, that's kind of a, I can't even dribble a ball. That's, that's a problem. That is a barrier. Uh, but entry, I'm also not. I think. Yeah. Right. Rig barrier entry. I also am not six four. You know, you could probably play there, Ricky. You know, you're closer than I am. Um, I, I'd be the shortest one on the court. You would be, but you'd be closer. Than, I'm only five eleven. I'm just like middle of the road. Uh, hundred was it? Hundred seventy eight centimeters. See, I can do metric, almost sort of. <laughs> good. Have to think about it. My nose bleeds a little bit when I do it, uh, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, I'm better at like lifting and throwing heavy things. That's that's my natural inclination. Um, but you know, if we zoom out a little bit here, all of us are speaking a language. You all managed, and everyone's listening to this, assumingly that they're actually listening to it. Anybody, please, anybody there? Uh, you learned at least one language as a child. Now, granted, there's very important differences between first language acquisition as a child and second, third, fourth language acquisition as adults, there are differences, but it's a huge Venn diagram and most of it overlaps. And that's what matters. And so if you learned a language, you can learn another language. Well, now I'm going to get selfish here, John. I'm trapped, right, in, the, I'm, I'm trapped into the intermediate phantom zone uh, and I can't escape. Um, the I plateau feel like of I'm, death. I feel like I'm, I'm not improving at all. And I've, I've got a couple of things. So 
I think because I'm basically self-taught, although I have, you know, you know, basically, there are some embarrassing gaps in my knowledge. So I don't, I don't know how to fill the, those gaps. So I know some really con- complex, like, like advanced things or, or sure. you know, but then there's, it's so embarrassing. But if you ask me simple sentence constructions, like, you know, even I still haven't got my head around. I prefer, I like this more than this, or, or this is bigger than that, or this is easier than that. I, I know, you know what I mean? So I've got like this sure. horrible gumbo of advanced and simple things. How do I fix it? Well, first of all, I think it's important to realize that everybody that has ever learned a language goes through exactly that. So you're perfectly normal. Um, the other thing I want to point out is you said at the very beginning, I feel like these are really important to look at the words you used. I feel like I'm not improving. That's very important because I think a big part of the so-called intermediate plateau or the trough of despair, there's lots of words for this, but a lot of it is just that you're still improving at the same absolute rate, but the relative rate of improvement gets less and less and less and less, right? If you go from zero to five words, that's a massive jump. You go from five to 10, a little bit smaller, 10 to 15, smaller. You see where I'm going with this. A lot of diminishing returns in terms of the actual tangible psychological awareness of, of progress. And so I think that's a big part of it. It's just you're not noticing. You're still learning at an absolute rate. It's just as much as you were before. It's just you have such a bigger foundation now. It's a drop in the bucket. So you don't notice it. That's a big part of it, I think. Which sounds like a cop out answer, but I think it's no, no, no. It's it's you're right, and and I think it's just like for example, like there's a, there's a one of the resources that you you mentioned is just one of a million, but uh, there's a I, I recommend this <laughs> probably one. too many to be honest. Yeah. No, no. I think they're all good for different parts of the journey, and so I use drops. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've had that for a long time, but it's a very fun one for, for particular, I, I recommend it for, for beginners. Um, so very yeah. gamified. Very gamified. Exactly. Yep. Very simple. So, yep. so I've just said that like, you know, I feel bad and everything, but I'm serious. I get a hundred percent like every time I get on that now, like, 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 because sure. of, like, so I'm, you know, I know enough kanji to be able to put together whatever it's so it's almost kind of useless as an app now. Like, cause I don't learn, mm-hmm. I, I look at the kanji and I go, I can guess basic. I, I I just know I can know one character in in whatever it is. I'm like, okay, well then that that I know that's water, or I know that's so I can right. so, so I don't really get anything out of it. But having said that, overall, I remember when I used to do it and do very badly. So well, there you go, proofs in the pudding. I I think that leads to one of my solutions for this, which is measurement, measuring your progress. It's really, really important, especially as you get into the intermediate and upper intermediate stages to have some kind of benchmark, some kind of yardstick to know if you actually are improving or not. And you you have kind of a poor man's one you just shared, which is like things you used to not know. Now, you know, it's like, okay, I'm actually progressing. I think ideally what you want to do is figure out ways to measure the four skills and do it in a authentic way. And what I mean by that is don't just go by like words known or, um, you know, kanji recognize things like that. Like you can do that. That's, that is one definitely very easy thing to measure. But I, what I like to do is a little bit more subjective, but I think actually more meaningful, which is things like recording yourself. 
So every like three months or so, get out your phone, record yourself giving, it could be your self-introduction. It could be talking about a specific topic. The key thing is you want to do the same thing every time so that you're minimizing variables. And so like, for example, I think a self-introduction is great because that's something you're going to need and use over and over and over. So every three months, whip out your phone and just give like a five minute self-introduction, right? Chico Shokai. And then send that to your language tutor on something like italki.com, which is a great place to find native speakers. Have them look for mistakes in your pronunciation, in your grammar, in your vocabulary. And you can even use a tool like, um, like Dropbox now has this, SoundCloud has this, but they actually have, uh, you can upload your audio file and then they can make comments at specific timestamps in the audio. And they could then point out like, oh, you said you didn't, you know, you, this is supposed to be a long vowel in Japanese and it was a short vowel, something like that. Or your pitch accent. That's something as you get more advanced in Japanese, you want to make sure your pitch accent is correct because basically they have these distinctions in Japanese between high and low that if you get them wrong, you can be understood, but you sound really gaijin. You know, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't looking at you. I wasn't looking at you, John. Uh, <laughs> and that's just something that comes with, with time and practice. Uh, but things like that anyway, and you do that every three months or every six months, whatever it is. And then when you hear that, when you go back and listen to the one you did three months ago or six months ago, I guarantee you, you're going to listen to that and go, whoa, I sounded awful. <laughs> but at the time, I thought I sounded pretty good. <laughs> and that moment, that moment where you go, I sounded awful, it seems like a negative, but it's actually a positive because then you're like, okay, I am improving actually. It seems like I'm just on this level plane forever. But it's just a very, 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 you know, slack angle that I don't notice on a daily basis. But when you zoom out from a high enough level of resolution, you realize like, actually it is going up. I am going the right way. That's really so great that's, advice. That's, that's what really that's that's really great advice. We're mindful of time, but, uh, uh, so I'll just squeeze one more in uh, on 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 this sort of stuff. So. You know, you've recommended uh, that a tutor, an online tutor, is is a good thing to have. I've struggled mm -hmm. with this a little bit, um, maybe for the reasons of, you know, not wanting to seem foolish, and but also the biggest one is is finding a good one uh, on yes, iTalki or 100%. whatever it is. What's yeah. what what's your, you know, sort of um, process for finding one that you yeah. vibe with or one that works for you where you're at now? Right. I think number one thing is just go into it knowing you're going to have to go through quite a few tutors probably until you find a few that you click with one or a few that you click with really well. It's like dating. You know, what are the chances you go on one date with one person and you get married to that person, right? Mm. Pretty slim. Um, you might, you might luck out. It happens. You know, my now wife, literally the first time I met her that moment I knew, which I used to think was absolute cliche Hollywood bullshit. And that happened to me. I'm like, okay, I guess that actually could happen. Um, anyway, with tutors, yeah, I would expect budget yourself at least five, probably more like 10 going through different people. And then just be honest with yourself that, okay, I didn't really jive with that person. We didn't really click. Or they tried to teach me the language. That's something that most more old school tutors slash teachers are going to try to do. They're going to go, okay, here's a textbook. We're going to go through this textbook together. Boop, boop. Not for me. That's not how I want it. That's, if I'm paying for this thing, I want it to be conversational. I do want them to note my mistakes and I want them to write in the chat box the you know the mistakes I made or if a new word came up, 
I have them write it down for me. If there's a resource recommendation, I'll have them put the link in there for me. Um, and how many sessions a week would be, do you think would be good? one is one is good. More is better, but one should be your minimum viable habit. 30 minutes once a week. Okay. That's your bare minimum. Anybody can do that. Anybody can make that work. Um, ideally probably more like three a week, but I think 30 minutes is actually a good amount of time. You can do an hour, you know, a lot of the tutors, their standard time might be an hour. Uh, I think 30 minutes is about ideal beyond 30 I minutes. Do, you, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, I want to go like all in, right. And, uh, and do the three, I got to do a lot of horse trading with my wife, you know, my daughter to get those three sessions there, you know, you need a Japanese yeah. wife, John. Maybe I could dump my wife. Wife number two. Get a Japanese wife. And that would Somehow be... that tip didn't make it into my book. That's, I don't know. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. That is something to be aware of too. I'll, I'll put, since you bring it up, uh, I do think for a number of reasons, you should pick somebody of the same gender for your tutor. Now, the most important reason for that is that, especially for a language like Japanese or Mandarin, you want to match the mannerism and pronunciation and word usage of somebody of I've had your same. I've had um, I've I've spoken like a female, you know. Most of us do. I mean, <laughs> in my case, you know, yeah. That's your name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, oh no, no. Right. Yeah. Asking questions. <laughs> uh, but it makes sense. A lot of us. I mean, when I first started learning Japanese in college, I had a Japanese girlfriend, and so. Almost all of my input was, yes, from somebody that spoke very differently. I mean, it took a lot of Yakuza movies to yes. retrain Takeshi myself. Kitano, you, need, you need just... That's right. I get all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to roll those, you know. <laughs> you know, you got to really <laughs> lean into it. So, yeah, same gender, but it also has the added benefit, or it's a downside, depends on your situation, of either staying married or not wandering away. Cause that does happen often is people use these tutoring sites as basically a dating platform. So, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. If that's what you want, this is but all if, sorts of good advice today that John's given you. So people, if you are looking how to for, stay married from John, <laughs> yeah, how, to, no, how to stay married or how to get a hot Japanese, um, waifu. I mean, it's <laughs> right. all the same. Yeah. You do you boo boo. Yeah. Well, I, I think ultimately what needs to happen is someone needs to invent the machine from Battlefield Earth that just you sit in it and it just transmits the knowledge straight into your brain. Which they totally stole from the Matrix, though. That's a total Matrix ripoff. Come on. You know, the download. Oh, what, what came first? Ba ba Battlefield Earth or? It's a L. Ron Hubbard, isn't it? L. Ron Hubbard wrote that, yeah. Wait, really? Yes. Oh, now I'm embarrassed. Novels, but that, did, yeah. but that, didn't, that came out as a movie, though, later, right? That was did, uh, yeah. with... With our John Travolta, our, our John Travolta. yeah, right, yeah. John Travolta, when his head's this big, like yeah. he just his <laughs> yeah. head just keeps increasing yeah. With, yeah. with each passing year. I think I think that was his attempt to bring L. Ron Hubbard like to the mainstream. You know, right? Didn't work. Didn't work too well. Uh, yeah, fancy that a sci-fi writer that you know created a 
sci-fi religion hmm. yeah interesting so john uh, i think we should we should maybe put a bow on it and i feel like i want to give you the fast before the, the, the scientologists assassinate us <laughs> we're, we're, we're weirdly sympathetic to scientology uh okay. so it's another discussion for another time perhaps they're all, all right. very successful uh you know at least you know it's a very successful if, if you're a celebrity if you're a celebrity right. <laughs> but i would be the celebrity that's right yeah, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be in that other compound they've got for all the plebs. That's that, yeah. yeah. So, no, but no. but basically, uh, John, maybe give give us the the final word on language learning. I suppose one of the, our main um, missions, uh, you know, is to try and get some of our uh, our listeners to check out of of some of the the less helpful content that they may be consuming, mm-hmm. and to yeah, learn a language. Uh, and and to 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 so you know people who are listening now who are absolute beginners and and have, and have got that thought I'd really love to learn Italian or or Japanese mm-hmm. or something. I mean, what 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 advice would you have for them right now? Hmm. We touched on it a little bit, but I think the first thing, the first foundational thing, is defining your why. Why are you doing this? And I think a lot of people fail in language learning right out of the gate because they have a really flabby weak why they think eh, it'd be kind of cool to, you know, speak Japanese, um, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It is kind of cool. Uh, but all these things we talked about today, all the tolerance for ambiguity and uncertainty and looking like an idiot and having to endure all this stuff, it, it you know, there's a lot as fun as languages are and as amazing of a communicative tool as they are as much of a key as they are to unlock doors you didn't even knew existed. Um, there's still a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering that goes along the way. And I'd be a liar if I said there wasn't. Um, and as much as I kind of emphasize the positives as much as I can about how fun languages can be and how to make your learning process as fun as possible, you know, reading manga instead of reading textbooks, watching Netflix instead of sitting through a class, those things are more enjoyable, but you cannot skip the suck. There's going to be suck. And I think setting out from the beginning with full awareness that there's going to be discomfort and suffering is you're going to set yourself up for success later. And having that ironclad purpose and why, you know, it's a whole uh, Nietzsche thing, right? He with a strong enough why can survive anyhow or something to that effect. Uh, really nailing down. I even suggest writing it down, like put it on a piece of paper and put it on your computer so you see it every day. Why you're learning this language and that way when you encounter some of that suck, you have enough of a through line to keep you going to get to the good stuff because it will come. I mean, languages are amazing. You can, you know, whether it's finding that that new wife or just <laughs> traveling and getting you know, getting the best off menu sushi, whatever it is, there's so much good that comes from it. Uh, having a different point of view, reading news in the original instead of a translation. You know, I briefly mentioned the Taiwan China thing. I mean, be able to read news in mainland simplified Chinese and realizing that what they're saying and what the people actually believe and then reading the Taiwanese news and realizing like, and then reading English news from the States or BBC or whatever, realize there's three different narratives happening about one real event. Having that language ability is like, uh, it's like see-through glasses. You can kind of see through to the truth. You can kind of triangulate the truth by looking at multiple different sources. So it's kind of a superpower. It really is. Mm. Well, one thing that just, just popped into my mind when you're talking about, about the, the, the sucking part of learning something, Stephen Pressfield 
in his book, The War of Art, he talks about, Love it. Um, you know, sort of falling in love with the sucky part, like like being yeah. being a Marine, you know, they specialize in, you know, eating the shittiest food, having the shittiest right. conditions and kind of wearing that as a badge of honor in a way. So I don't quite know how you, you, you fully get into that mindset where you love the sucky part more than the Netflix part. I don't know how that works, but mm. I don't know if you've got thoughts on that. What comes to mind first is jumping right into something like an italki session right out of the gate when you hardly know anything and just knowing this is going to be the most difficult, stressful, sweaty 30 minutes of my life. And I'm going to have to use Google Translate every other word. I sweat up but a gonna... storm during those <laughs> sessions. Yep, me too. <laughs> but I'm going to bloody do it out of the gate. And I'm going to prove to myself that I can communicate with, you have five words half of which came from a tra online translator, I'm going to do it and it's going to suck, but I'm going to have done it. And then the next time it'll be a little bit easier and then a little bit easier. And then I'm also going to be super motivated between those super sucky italki sessions to put in more time doing the anywhere immersion stuff I talked about, knowing that I'm going to want to have something to say the next time I'm in one of those sessions. So it'll suck a little less. The fear of the suck can actually, you know, kind of motivate you to do the things you really need to do. No, actually, no, you'll appreciate this, uh, John. One of my friends, Japanese friends, he takes the TOEIC test, the English test that they do over there. He takes Which it like sucks. every couple of weeks. <laughs> wow. he, he takes this thing and he, and he says, yes, Mike, he's, his best is like 900 or something. And he's desperately trying to get this this perfect score. But he, he's he got this that, that very Japanese attitude, like this sort of just that acceptance of. Yes. Yes, yes. And he just do it. He'll just go, oh, yes, no good, but I'm, I'm just going to yeah. keep going. This is actually, and I know we're trying to wrap up, but this is a very interesting uh, observation here, which is a big part of Japanese culture is this idea of gaman, which is like enduring, enduring discomfort, enduring pain. The problem is there is that they endure the wrong pain. The wrong they stuff. The wrong, <laughs> when it comes to language acquisition. Yes, that's right? so true. They are the, they are the epitome of this rote, memorization focused mm. kind of super critical analysis bottom-up kind of approach and it, it shows i mean people study english for 10 plus years there and can't communicate to save their lives and it's so sad because they're such hardworking, diligent people they give it their all they want to be able to do it and then when it comes time to actually try to communicate they can't and then they blame themselves they think i just need to go back mm. to the coal mine and work a little harder it's like no 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 you need a new coal mine <laughs> yeah. Body muscle. Well, John, we're, we're very mindful of time, but we do have one quick question that we ask all our guests because we are on a mission uh, not only to get people learning a, a second language, but also to read more. So we'd like mm. to know what you're reading right now. Mm. Good question. Uh, so I've read it once before, but I just got the physical copy of 4,000 Weeks which is I'd listened to it and I wanted to actually read it in, in paper format. I'm also, I, I refuse to say that listening to an audiobook is not reading. I think that's bullshit. Reading's reading. I think for the most part, it's coming in your brain. It's reading. That said, I do love to underline sentences and write in the, the marginality. Um, I just reread Steal Like an Artist again. That's one alongside oh, that's a good uh, one. The War of Art. I tend, I read it every year. I try to just repeat that just when I'm kind of, Feeling like I'm stuck in my own way professionally, uh, letting the resistance kick my ass a little too much. 
I go back and I, I reread those too. The War of Art is uh, one of the greatest books ever written. I think so. Have you read Turning In the Pro? Modern Times. Yeah. Yes, I've started it. Um, no, I have read Turning Pro. Yes, I have. Yeah. Yes. It's a good you know, sequel to it. I think it gets more into the nitty gritty of, he kind of touches on the Turning Pro idea, but I, I found, at least for me, I found it. I'm uh, desperate to get no. him on the show. I got, oh, geez, this is the one thing. This is just my pet peeve, and this is inside baseball stuff. But oh, publishers drive me crazy. Ah, uh, yeah. They just drive gotta, me crazy. You got to skip the gatekeeper. You got to find I know, another way. No, but I know that Steve. If he listened to, if he if he heard read our pitch, he would he would come on in a second. But I get the publisher, and then they sent they and then, and I every author who's listening to this right now, your publisher does not have your best interest in heart. They, 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 they don't want, they won't do anything interesting. They won't put you on any interesting shows. They, they'll just no. look at the top three. They'll just go, it's not the biggest podcast in the world. Therefore, right. we don't, we're not interested. If they even support going on a podcast. I mean, these things have changed a little. You know, when I first started the Language Mastery Show in 2009, no one knew what a podcast was. I had to explain to people, uh, it's kind of like the radio, but it's online and it's, you know, on demand, blah, blah, blah. And then you see their eyes glaze over and they're gone. Uh, you know, nowadays, most people know what a podcast is, but still, I think there's still amongst publishers and mainstream media, there's this idea that it's not real. It's not the same as, even if the, even if the viewership or the listenership is many times larger than like a, you know, daytime TV viewership, they'll pick that because it seems more prestigious. You know, well, Stephen, if you're listening to our show, you can find us on Twitter. Hit us up. We desperately <laughs> yeah. want to have you on board. Stephen, come on the show. Okay, it was the best show of all time. <laughs> That's and a I really was, good. Okay, show. huge. It was a big show. Hugely big show. Okay. <laughs> all I'll of John's voices today have left me in stitches. <laughs> yes. I don't yes. know which I like best. The cigar uh, was pretty good. The Trump, uh, yes, Trump, I like the Jack Nicholson too. I've never actually done so a Stephen Seagal. That was that was. That was a virgin territory. That just came. So. That was in wow. you. That was waiting. A deep to come place. Out. Well, I That's can only right. do. I can only do specific words like semi-automatic. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Fully automatic. Semi-automatic. Semi. 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 <laughs> yeah, you have to move your mouth a lot, but not not actually enunciate. Much. Yes, that's right. Which is a very yeah. It's like the opposite of Japanese, actually. Yes. That's true. No, it's a very stationary uh, uh, language, isn't yeah. it? Uh, well, um, John, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'll say it. Might as well. You said embarrass myself. I might as well. Kyo wa honto ni benkyo ni narimashita. Ah, yokata desu. Ya, kochira kaso. Yoshiko onegaishimasu. Hai. Yoshiko onegaishimasu. Which is the weirdest thing. It's like the hardest, longest word you have to learn first. It's, it's absurd. I know. Thanks, but Jeff. they don't Thanks. teach it. They don't actually don't teach you Yoroshiko no Negoshimasu not yet and in class. No, they teach they they don't, they should. Well they, they teach, like, teach you to say sayonara. <laughs> which no yeah, one says. Konnichiwa and sayonara, which like nobody ever says ever. Like you say it's sayonara, sayonara. Like, what, are, the person are you dying? Yes, people go, Are you leaving forever? And you go, Are you, you forever? <laughs> Is that what that means? Like you're you're committing suicide. It's final. It's final. It's like goodbye. it's goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye forever. Farewell. It's, on, it's on a train platform, goodbye. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Well, John, your website is called languagemastery.com and I recommend everyone go and check that out. Uh, where else uh, can people find you? Are you, on, are you on social media? I am not on social media, actually. I 
completely pulled the plug a few Lucky years you. back. Yeah, well, it, I, I didn't want to be a hamster on a wheel anymore. At least not that one. Um, yeah, languagemaster.com. That's the best one. Uh, yeah, you can find my podcast there. Going to be launching a YouTube channel, actually, finally, pretty soon here. Um, yeah, stay tuned. Excellent. Thanks, John. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.